What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, welcome to NSYNC, the podcast that explores the history and impact of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm your host, Rachel Brodsky. And I am Spartacus. <laughs> Aviv, that was perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Last week's episode explored the classic 1996 comedy film, That Thing You Do. We talked about the making of Tom Hanks' directorial debut and the unlikely story of how Adam Schlesinger's now-famous title song was picked out of literally hundreds of submissions to soundtrack the movie. In this week's B-Side episode, we're talking to actor Tom Everett Scott, star of That Thing You Do, about his breakout role as Guy Shades slash Skitch slash Spartacus Patterson. You don't necessarily have to have listened to last week's episode to enjoy this one, but we recommend going back and listening anyway. Yes, Aviv, I've found that a hit record is like a stew. All of the ingredients have to come together just right. Otherwise, it's just soup. And on that note, here's our chat with Tom, a very good sport who wore his own pair of shades along with us for the first five or so minutes of this conversation. Hi, I'm Kyle. Can We Geek About is a new podcast from Gotham West. Each week, JJ and I will delve into the geekier side of pop culture from our favorites in science fiction and fantasy to new releases and even maybe rag on some absolute flops. We promise that even if you don't like what we have to say, you'll like how we say it. But anyway, can we geek about? Did you really need me here for this? I just needed a ride. (sighs) Can we geek about? So give us a listen, subscribe or follow, wherever you get your podcasts. the good sport award for humoring us with the shades <laughs> tell us about the shades okay so yeah so i love that you guys have your shades on so then i have to put mine on and these are from the erie seawolves erie pennsylvania where the oneaters are from obviously there's an actual minor league baseball team there that 
had a wonders day. <gasps> and Steve Zahn and Jonathan Check and myself went up. Ethan couldn't go. And we went up and we threw out the first pitch and we helped raise a bunch of money for Music oh. Cares. Yeah. That is. Oh, that's great. Just or not Music Cares. Sorry. We did oh. Music Cares when we did like during the pandemic, we did like a mm. uh, watch along. Yeah. Yeah. YouTube. Yeah. I remember that. For, uh, then we did a different for charity Adam. for the for the baseball thing. We did uh, Jonathan's charity for um, dyslexia. Oh, amazing. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I think we probably have to start with a very serious and important question, which is, how did we get here, Sketch? <laughs> that should be the name of my podcast. You can have that. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Yeah. Uh, you'll, you'll get credited. <laughs> how did we get here? I don't know. I mean, how did we get where and what are we talking about? Well, we've just been talking for maybe 90 minutes or so about that thing you do and the uh, monumental rise of both the movie and the song and unlikely success in terms of finding its place in the cultural landscape without necessarily being like a huge box office smash. It did achieve that. Uh, that was um, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think that as a 25-year-old starting out as an actor and getting my opportunity with my idol, Tom Hanks, I certainly thought I was already, you know, winning. I was already, you know, something great was happening for me and it didn't really matter how successful the movie was. Of course, you do want it to be a success. And then it, it didn't really perform at the box office. That was strange. Was that a surprise for the people involved? And do you all think it was going to be this massive smash hit? Sure. You know, I had high hopes. Um, it, it's crazy. Like, I mean, I'm just I'm going back to a time when I was really just so naive and didn't know anything about the industry. So mm. I was definitely a moviegoer. I knew mm -hmm. that I knew that movies had to perform well. I knew that it, you didn't want to have a you know a bomb at the box office. You didn't want to have a stinker. We knew the movie was good. It's funny because you know what was number one at the box office was um like um First Wives Club, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First Which Wives Club totally makes sense. It's three megastars in it. True. Right? It has a good needle drop in it. It does. <laughs> although it's funny because there's been, at least from my vantage point, like a, an inversion. Because although people do love First Wives Club, it still feels of a certain time. And I'm not sure it has stood the test of time quite to the extent that that thing you do has. And I, I was going to ask you if you've noticed an uptick in interest because it's on Hulu now, I think it's the, that thing you do is the sort of film that you will no doubt see on like HBO or Netflix or H or Hulu, and it's it's always sort of surfing the streaming sites. And so, given that it's I think been so available, have you noticed an uptick uh, culturally because of that? I have always felt that the movie just does really well, and. It's just an enjoyable film. People have always said that and that it's their favorite movie or whatever. And yeah, we're taking the shades off, but we're not yeah. losing, we're not losing the able. spirit. We just need to be able to see. I was trying to do yeah. it subtly. <laughs> I'm glad um, you did, Aviv, because I was... <laughs> now I can see you guys. Yeah. Um, so when the movie tested, it tested across the board as, you know, performing well with every single group. 
And I remember talking to the guys at Playtone, you know, it wasn't Playtone yet, that, that they formed Playtone, Tom and Gary Getzman formed it after that thing you do, obviously based on Playtone, the record label. But Gary Getzman, who's Tom Hanks' producing partner and produced that thing you do, uh, he, he was like, you know what, maybe that was the problem is that it just did so well with every group, you couldn't zero in on one group and have that group come to the theater in droves. I mean, I guess that's how you think about it back then in the, you know, in the box office days. And then after it had left the theaters and it would still come back or come back on DVD or come back on, you know, various TV screens, people would be like, oh, we watch this every time it's on. It's a, it's a remote drop movie. Uh, I remember my friend who on the business side was like, well, I'm, you know, like have a job as an acquisition person at this new network. And the first movie we, you know, licensed was that thing you do. And I was like, oh, really? Like, and she said, because, yeah, everyone's going to want to watch it. So that's when I kind of realized that it had legs. I just, to answer your question, I don't really know whether it's because it's available all the time, which it is. Mm -hmm. That's always a good thing. Mm -hmm. But also I just think that um, it's just a real feel-good movie. Mm -hmm. It has a bit of a bite to it more so than other kind of schmaltzy feel-good like to Disney Touchstone movies. Yeah. I don't think it is schmaltzy even though. Like, no, I don't I, think yeah, so it's, it's got it's got a lot of real... I mean, kids can not to interrupt you, Aviv, but like, how dare it's, you? It's kids can. I mean, I saw it earlier in the episode. We talked about how I saw it uh, on my tenth birthday party, but it, <laughs> but it grows. But you grow with it, and it grows with you. You do grow with it, and as I've gotten more jaded, I understand the like the, the, the doomed fate of the wonders. Matt Damon, when he was on Hot Ones, talked a little bit about the landscape of movies in the mid 90s specifically i think as it pertained to like rounders where mm. you could count on ancillary markets you can count on dvd releases or vhs releases to like have a second life for movies and especially with a movie like that thing you do the soundtrack had such a huge funnel or a huge feeder into people's love of the movie you know a movie like the Shawshank Redemption also famously didn't do well at the box office and then had such a long tail on home video. Can you talk a little bit about being a part of the music side of this phenomenon that allowed it to become this remote drop movie years later? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can just get, go to what I experienced, which was first reading the script and, and realizing that there was going to be a song that had, you know, the title, that thing you do, and it was going to play several times throughout the movie. So my brain definitely was thinking like, well, what, what will that be? That'll be some original song. That's kind of interesting. And then I got cast in the movie, which is, you know, phenomenal. And I was really like, kind of like having a not about it experience. And then I go to LA to film this, um, I'm shooting this TV show called Grace Under Fire, which I was recurring mm -hmm. on. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and Tom and Gary said, come stop by the production office. You know, we we're in pre-production and, so that was fun. And I go over there and they're like, you know, maybe we'll give you like a little drum lesson while you're here. And and I went to the rec some recording studio in the valley and and then they were like, we're, we're delivering the drum set. And then the drum kit appeared and then they played the song. And that was the first I ever heard of it. So here was this like vintage, you know, kit uh, delivered by some guy named the Drum Doctor, who I'm friends with now and helps me like keep my I drums know the drum in, doctor. in shape. Yeah, dude. Yeah. And uh, and then he arrived with Jimmy Keltner, who's one of his buddies. And Jimmy Keltner's like one of the greatest drummers of all time. He was George Harrison's drummer. And, mm. you know, so I'm freaking out. And we all are. And and they're setting up the kit and we're listening to Adam Schlesinger's song. And then Gary's saying, you know, there were 300 submissions. To, mm -hmm. for cool. yeah mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. what and tom and gary wrote 
a version mm-hmm. that, you know, they were proud of and they liked it, but obviously they they loved Adams the most. And then I got sent back to New York where I lived for a month before coming back out to play with the band uh, for another month. So it was two months of music rehearsal before we even started shooting. But that month in New York on my own with my drum teacher was when I also listened to Little Wild One, Dance With Me Tonight, um, mm. you know, uh, All My Only Dreams. Like I learned five songs and then I learned five versions of That Thing You Do. What was the learning curve like for you? This was actually a little, when I was researching, a little tricky to get clarity on in terms of who was playing what? I mean, did you have a body double? Like, uh, or was it was it you kind of on the sticks like 90 to 100% of the time? It's me 100% of the time. There was no yeah. drum double, uh, which, you know, like going into it, I thought they were, they're going to want a drum double. You know, they're going to want I even put forth like a friend of mine. I was like, this guy, Josh Karras, he's a, you know, drummer and he looks like me. And then they were like, mm, interesting, interesting. But Tom was like, I just I hired actors and we'll figure out the music thing later. So <laughs> No he, pressure. No pressure. And yeah. my audition, he looked on the back of my headshot was my resume and under special skills, I had trumpet. And right. he was like, is this true? Because I'm an actor. I know that could be untrue. <laughs> and uh, I said, no, 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 it's true. I played for like years in in junior high and high school. And he said, okay, so you have some sense of, you know, music and rhythm and stuff like yeah, that. And actually- You can transfer this. <laughs> totally. Totally. You know, my drum teacher wrote all my parts out on sheet music and I did read all my parts. Um, that was super helpful. And you didn't just do like, I, cause there is a, such a difference between like a more straightforward pop song, like that thing you do and the B sides that you mentioned earlier. And then you're playing these, uh, these jazz solos as well. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so my teacher, Billy Ward, he said, I'm not going to teach you how to play the drums. Um, we're not going to learn paradiddles. We're not going to do like hours of stick control. We're going to just, I'm going to show you how to hold the sticks and then, and look cool. And um, we're going to learn the songs. I was like, great, let's do it. So a month of, and I did it seven days a week. I did it eight hours a day. He would rehearse with me as much Whoa. as I wanted, which would be up to like two hours a day. And then I would just fill the rest of the time in a studio that they would, production would rent me a studio. So I had full access. And even when I wasn't at the drums, I was like on the subway, just trying hands and feet, trying to get my parts. And uh, I will say I learned all those songs. Like I made it my mission to not look fake. And I must have been a drummer in another life because I couldn't do it at first. You don't look fake. and that, Right. <laughs> I couldn't do it at first. And then I learned how to do it. I, I don't think it would sound like a real drummer, but it, I made it look as much like a real drummer as I could. And the jazz stuff, the first time we shot the I Am Spartacus thing at the end, mm-hmm. it was too hard. And we re- we filmed it anyway. And I was so disappointed with what I was doing. It was super hard solo. Yeah. And the craziest thing is that all the footage from the first time we passed through that Del Paxton thing mm-hmm. in the studio, it all came back out of focus. It was some lens problem. Kismet. And oh. no. And we lost that location of that studio, Sunset Recording oh. Studio. Oh. Uh, and we had to rebuild the whole thing at Fox. So I got another oh, no. crack at it, which I couldn't believe. And I said, this time, guys, I just want to change the solo if I can. Is there something we can do to make it a little easier for me to play? And we had my drum teacher, Billy Ward, come and re- record something. And that's what you hear is Billy Ward playing the I am Spartacus thing and it was he knew what I could handle and it was mostly like triplets. It's a, like da 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 and that's that whole thing. And he incorporated in the actual drums from that thing you do, that boom, bop, mm. bop, doom, digga, digga. You know, that's that's the lead into that thing you do, and then he jazzes it up. I read that your rap gift was actually the drum set. 
yeah, Tom's standing there. We're in that rebuilt recording studio at Fox and it's my last day. And Tom's standing there next to me and he goes, are you sad? <laughs> I was like, yes, of course I'm sad. And he said, are you uh, sad you're never going to play these drums again? And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, this was the greatest. <laughs> like the Cadillac of drums. And he said, well, they're yours. And, and I was just like, what? And they appeared in New York City on the Upper West Side of my apartment in, you know, drum boxes. Some Where you can definitely fit a drum set in your yeah, not at all Upper West Side apartment. <laughs> Some third floor walk up. The UPS guy was like, right. Uh. <laughs> and is this drum set something that is still in your possession? It's here. It's not in this room that I'm recording in. It's in the yeah. uh, room behind me. But yeah, it's here. I had it set up. It goes through periods of being in boxes and being set up depending on who wants to get their frustration out and you know play the drums. <laughs> In the oral history from The Ringer, which is a great resource for us, they said that Tom, Mr. Hanks. Mr. Hanks. He would kind of sing his way through making up these 60s era songs and he sang through I Am Spartacus. Or he like came up with the, I suppose, the original very difficult fill for I Am Spartacus. How did he communicate that? to you all on set. Yeah, I don't know how much of the drum solo he had a part of, but he definitely sang the piano part to the guy who played it and who was there on set. And that was funny because that musician who's playing the piano and then Bill Cobb comes in and, and fakes it. But that musician, and I forget his name, I wish I remembered it, but he saved Tom singing onto his like answering machine, you know, back when we had answering machines, that whole piano bit. I think Tom did a lot of that kind of thing with all the music where he sang it or played it on guitar or piano because Tom's Tom's a renaissance man. Let's face it. You know, he's probably one of the most talented performers of our day. Mm. And he wrote all those songs except for that thing you do. Right. Your experience working with Tom as one of your first major working experiences, it kind of makes me think of my first job, my first full time job out of college where I had like the best boss ever. And there were other things about that job that made me not want to say, but she was not one of them. I just loved her. She had, she had, she had all this crazy experience. She'd like worked at Vogue. She'd worked at like Harper's Bazaar. And I was like, I want to learn from this person. That being said, the downside was that she set such a high bar for bosses that I didn't even know what like the world of bad bosses could be like <laughs> after departing from her presence. So, um, so I wondered like, did <laughs> working with Tom, Mr. Hanks, in the time since that thing you do, like what has been kind of the ups and downs and learning experiences that you've had in terms of who your director is? Like, did Mr. Hanks just set this like bar for you? And like, what was it like to kind of go from there? Yeah, he set the bar for not only directors that I would then work for, but just anybody in charge of anything ever. He approached this in such a great way because he knew what we were going through as actors, obviously. He would always say things like, you can do no wrong, which is such a great, you know, direction and mantra on a film set. You know, he just wanted to create a comfortable atmosphere where you felt like you could just try stuff. Yeah, he really, he, he, he taught me how to act on camera. He stood on my mark for my first big close up and said, go ahead and look through the lens and and I'll I'll stand on your mark and you can see like what this and it was like this tight, like in on my face. 
and he was like, uh, your nose nostrils will be as big as Buick's, you know, up on the screen. And, uh, and I was like, okay. And, and so less is more. And so you can do no wrong and less is more. We're kind of like the mantra. He did a lot of things where he saw me kind of just overwhelmed with a hundred, over a hundred people working in a room and me kind of not knowing what my role is. And he just said, come on, let's go outside. And I was like, you know, you know, get out of here a little some air and we're on the church steps where the band records with guy's uncle and we're out on the church steps and he said which is kind of brilliant little metaphor and he's like just do your part just do your job it's your you're a cog in a machine and all you have to worry about is your job and you'll be fine so he just he set the bar but he also kind of set me off on my path mm. there is a story that you did do wrong at <laughs> one point <laughs> that all of the wonders at one point showed up about 10 minutes late. <laughs> yeah. So Ethan was I, the only one who wasn't late. And Ethan was Ethan? otherwise the unknown motto of the movie is where's Ethan? Because he would just kind of like wander off and he, he was, was like, yeah, yeah. Living up to living up to TV players. He wasn't did, even 18 did. yet. He was a 17 year old and just, yeah, me and Steve and Jonathan, who I mean, otherwise were really, really professional and and on time and knew all our shit. And then there was one day where the three of us were all late for some crazy reason. Were you out partying the night before? Like, what set the record no. straight? No, you just it just happened. I mean, I can speak for me and Steve because we lived in the same complex in the marina. We lived at the Oakwood Furnished Living. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we would catch a ride every day, and we both overslept, and our van was waiting for us, but we knew we were in trouble. And then it was crazy because Jonathan, who lived in West Hollywood, he was also late that day. And it was the day of, gosh, probably the the talent show performance. So it was a big day. One. Yeah. We felt horrible. So Tom didn't say anything to us directly that I remember. Everyone's story is a little different. I remember Gary pulling us aside and saying, you can't ever do that again. Yeah, we saw Tom is very disappointed. Tom is very disappointed in you. That was crushing. I would walk into the ocean. I know. Does that just like make you want to walk off a cliff? Like to know that like America's dad is not yeah. mad. He's just disappointed. Yeah, exactly. It's like the whole day you're just like, he hates me. And how can I make this up to him? And I'll, I'll prove it to him. I'll show him. He never once showed us that he was angry ever. That's. I mean, that's good. Do you think that based on your role as kind of the emotional lead, emotional center of the film and your passing resemblance to tom hanks which almost didn't get you the part according to legend do you think that tom favored you i mean you got the same name you're tom jr at this point yeah i it made me like wish i my name wasn't tom at that moment <laughs> you know like you know when you know you know when you want something so bad and you're just like picking it apart like how can how can this not happen Ooh, because i'm tom because i'm tom that's why it won't happen have you listened to Dead Eyes? No, no, I haven't. I know about it. Connor Ratliff does that whole thing about the part that he lost. He's like, I stepped forward with my left foot and I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> right. But it was because he had the dead eyes. Yeah, it was because he had the dead eyes. I have to listen to that. Okay. It's very, very good. Oof. All right. It's going to traumatize me. And he has David Moscow, another, <sighs> you know, young oh, Tom Hanks on the, on the, oh, the show. Dave and I were pals before that thing you do. Oh, no shit. Mm. We had the same agent in New York and did a Coke commercial together or something like that. And then we became pals. He's an interesting dude. Yeah. Yeah. His book is really good. Oh, I should get it. 
it's called From Scratch. And he does a show where he goes to different locations and chefs will say, like, this is the meal. And then you kind of got to And then oh, yeah. David goes out and forages for the meal. It's great. I've seen clips, video, video of that. But in the extended version of the film, Guy's a little bit more complicated. And he has more shades than just the, like, nice guy. Can you talk about uh, what you brought to the role of Guy that maybe didn't make the final cut? Oh. <clears throat> That's a great question. Gosh, there's so many things I want to like answer about that because I kind of want to get back to what you guys said earlier when I said, you know, it's a feel good movie and you said it has some bite. It made me think, you know, that's actually why it's so good is because it's not just some like happy go lucky movie. There is, Mm. you know, Tom's sense of humor has bite to it. You know, it's like every great comic you you listen to, you're like, oh, they're hilarious. They're also angry. They're also like, (laughs) you know, commenting on life. And um, yeah, yeah. There, there, there was a lot about Guy. The initial script had them going to a summer camp and chasing kids covered in Benadryl all over the – not Benadryl. What was the stuff you – the orange stuff you put on mosquito bites? Not, not Benadryl. Oh, calamine lotion. Calamine lotion. Calamine lotion was a big part of the first draft. Because <laughs> uh, he worked at like Summerstock. Hanks did, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yes, that, I think you're right. And it was a callback to that and – it had, I mean, this movie had a whole journey that, you know, Tom, Tom are you, you guys should get Tom on this podcast, by the way. Well, yeah, man, let's call him in. Yeah. Is that like when my, my family says you should do a Marvel movie? And I'm like, yeah, yeah you should I call should. and see if Saturday Night Live is hiring. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> so Tom first started off with me saying, I cast you in this because I really thought, you know, one of the things I did in the audition when he asked me what I thought, I said, well, this guy's me. You know, this is me. We're parallel characters, but it's acting and music. And uh, I, so I'm just identifying with Guy, which I did in my little apartment in Manhattan, starting out waiting tables, you know, failing at all that stuff, but trying to be an actor. I really saw this connection to Guy wanting to be a musician. And then when I got it and Tom told me the whole thing about how he wasn't going to hire me because I looked like him. And the Rita was the one who watched the tape and said, you know, you should, you should cast this guy. So, you know, Rita's my best friend. <laughs> and then when we started, he said, I just don't want, you know, just, just be you. I cast you. You might have a tendency to like do stuff the way I do it. And because we're trying to avoid this whole like lookalike thing, just don't do anything the way I do it. And I was like, all right, well, just don't do anything so funny that I have to follow, you know, <laughs> you being you. And he's like, deal, no problem. <laughs> and he broke that promise toward the end at the hotel, at the ambassador. It didn't make the movie, but it made the final cut. Guy gets really drunk. Guy gets really, really drunk that night that he meets Del Paxton. Yeah. yeah. At the blue spot. But in the extended version where he comes back to the hotel and you see uh, Mr. White with uh, Howie Long's character. Mm-hmm. The weirdest mm-hmm. casting in the entire movie. Tom grew up in the Bay Area and is a massive like Oakland Raiders fan. Mm. There are several Oakland and Raiders references in the movie. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like Philip Villapiano was like a famous Raider football player. Oh, my God. I never even put that together. You guys lost me now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, please go. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, coming back. So guy's drunk and he goes and Tom says, this is what I want you to do. When you get out of your car, cab. When you walk up this carpet to the front door of the Ambassador Hotel and you don't even see the door, you just, and Tom did it. He just hit the door hard and fell straight back flat and like, 
everyone died. It was the greatest pratfall you've ever seen. <laughs> and I looked at him and I was like, you suck. I'll, <laughs> I'll never be able to be that funny. <laughs> and we did it. And several concussions yeah. later, I got it. And, uh, and we, and we did it. We, sh- we shot that scene. It was great. We did it. It was with, um, you know, Howie and Rita was also in that moment. And, um, I don't know. I forget, you know, I honestly haven't seen the director's cut enough because I don't, I don't really remember. I can lend you my, my DVD. <laughs> I also want to shout out the drummer of my own band whose favorite movie is that thing you do and was inspired to pick up the drums because of your performance. And I asked him what I should ask you. And he said, ask him why guy is such a dick in the extended version. <laughs> gosh what what he is I, is he i rewrote it i rewrote it to make it a little sweeter but but this is that I, one's for rick i'm just not gonna watch the extended version now because of i haven't seen it and guy to me only exists as like a beacon of perfection <laughs> that's, that's so sweet wait now hold on a second who says guy's <laughs> a dick talk directly to rick cut. his name is rick He's okay, a drummer and an editor. You f- you lay into him. <laughs> I'm gonna um, lay into him. You don't well, hold no, back. I, I want to with with an open mind. I want to like hear it. He, I want to hear the, also, the take. He's a little self centered with his interactions with Charlize too. Well, where he's like in the extended version, where he's okay. just like so obsessed with jazz and so obsessed with his work and with the Oneaters that like it is a little bit more of a. Uh, foregone conclusion that she's going to leave him and he kind of deserves it well i mean is he a dick or are they just poorly matched they, they just don't <laughs> work together oh this movie launched you as kind of the good-hearted everyman at that you got to play opposite Liv tyler aka Faye, emma stone in la la land which we'll ask you about in a minute Julie Delpy and my personal favorite uh, as Andrea Savage's husband in I'm sorry, very underrated. I'm sorry. Huge fan of that part and that show. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about any responsibility you might have felt or pressure? Like, did you at any point feel like a maybe there was like a typecast at work or did you feel any pressure being as like kind of showing up to be on this nice guy platform for audiences moving past the film that thing you do i think that i was happy to be cast you know in in any lead role i wasn't like really even thinking about it in that way and i think as an actor I wanted to also have range. So, yeah, I wanted to be able to do more than just the nice guy thing, but I wasn't going to turn down any work and talk to Tom early on after that thing you do about like jobs that were coming up for me. And he said, you know, you know, just keep working, like just do working is the most important thing. It it all sorts itself out. You can be precious about something and be totally wrong. You can overthink something and be totally wrong about it when you see the final product or, or over time. And I thought it was really sound advice. Now that there's evidence that I am a dick in the extended version, <laughs> now I feel this pressure to like really get that out there so that I can get more more of Edgy. those roles. Put that in your reel. Yeah. You know, I, I just approach things every every job. I just kind of approach it job to job. You know, like I'm at a point in my career now where, you know, just trying to like keep it rolling, getting mm-hmm. good stuff is like 
a bonus if if it's actually like quality film that people want to see that is such a bonus most of the stuff that i'm doing right now to be quite honest is like okay you know i gotta pay for college for my kids mm-hmm. and you know mortgage and that kind of thing doesn't mean that i don't enjoy acting i love it i still it's my favorite thing to do in the world i'm so lucky that i get to do what i love definitely a different person than I was when I started out in terms of my understanding of how it works, but I'm no less like excited to be an actor. It's just not always going to be that thing you do. You know, it's like, that's kind of a tough one to top. Real quick. I just want to throw in like a little anecdote. So our first episode of this podcast is about the show six feet under the final episode using see as breathe me. And one of my first celebrity sightings, if you will, in Los Angeles, when I moved here in 2017 was Frances Conroy. Um, from six oh, feet under yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm i'm obsessed with her uh that's one of my favorite ruth fisher's one of my favorite characters of all time and i almost never want to approach anybody because i don't want to like I, I don't want to disturb them i mean they're just going about their day buying groceries but i i did she was alone and i very briefly just approached her and was like i am such a big fan of your work please keep doing what you do and she just kind of was like, oh, well, it's just so good to get work. You know, it's just so good to, you know, and that, I was like, Francis Conroy, that's what you're saying, like the Francis Conroy, really? Like, so true. That sentiment, that's what I hear the most across Gosh, the board. Gosh, I can identify with that whole thing you just said from approaching <laughs> celebrities to her response. It's all true. Yeah, somebody said that to me earlier and they were like, approaching celebrities is like matchmaking your friends. It seems like a good idea. You probably shouldn't do it. <laughs> Unlike me, who just like hucked a microphone at you over your fence on you did. You like, did. Hey, Tom, what's up? But that's you know we had a we had a history. I don't mind when people come up to me. It depends on the situation. It depends on how they do it. Obviously, you know, if I'm sitting at dinner with my family, I don't want someone coming up to me and being an asshole. But <laughs> like. As an example, in the gym, you know, I was going to like the gym and I'm in the men's locker room getting changed and a guy comes up to me and I'm like, I don't know if this is the right time. You know, if you have to ask, yeah. if you have to ask. Not ideal. <laughs> but he was such a sweetheart about it. He was like, you got any more great work coming out? And I was like, oh, you know, I hope so. I hope you like it. Yeah. But yeah, I'm working all the time. He's like, well, I really love what you do. And I was like, thank you. You know, like, that was sweet in our towels. <laughs> Speaking of great work and speaking of kind of the the reappraisal or the the new perspective that you have on your work that you did in the 90s, in the Disney Plus movie Clouds from 2020, directed by Justin Baldoni, you got to recreate the everyone's favorite scene from that thing you do, where they hear the song on the radio for the first time. Can you tell us a little bit about how that scene came to be? I mean, clearly they didn't do it by accident, but how did you reapproach that with like this new... 25 years later perspective. So Justin said, I had this idea and I just want to run it by you first and see if you are okay with this. So that was very respectful and cool of him. But he was like, that's such an iconic scene. And we want to do that with Zach's song playing on the radio. If anyone listening doesn't know, Clouds is about the real life story of a boy who died, but he recorded a song and it did very well. You know, it was a great song, Clouds. And the movie's great. His life should be celebrated. He was just a very sweet positive person who who died really young from cancer and um it's great clouds on disney and um recreating that scene was so fun i also got to do it with you know nev campbell who yeah i was geeking out about uh working with her so we just had fun jumping around and and recreating that scene it was cool i, I just love when actors geek out over meeting each other 
Mm-hmm. It's just a yeah. straight, the strange meta experience. That yeah, <laughs> it's fun to witness yeah. that. Yeah. No, no, I love it. I love it. And you always just cross your fingers and hope that yeah. they're going to be cool because you don't know <laughs> what you're going to get. You can tell us who's not cool. We <laughs> <You> won't. <can? laughs> yeah, it's just us. Well, mm. you can <laughs> you can say off the record, and we won't. Put <laughs> you know, you know who sucks? <laughs> Tom Hanks. Um, <laughs> you, Rachel, do you want to talk about the other meta moment for Skitch Patterson? Hmm. Well, okay, so I gotta say, like, before we sat down for this interview, I rewatched La La Land just because it had been a while and um, I wanted to see your role in it. And legend has it that you were offered La La Land because uh, Damien Chazelle loved that thing you do. And also there's a, a central jazz theme. We wondered, like, how does that thing you do continue to affect areas of your life in ways that surprise you? That's a great example of that because I... I was so thrilled to be offered that role. And I loved Whiplash. Masterpiece. Yeah. Miles Teller's phenomenal actor. J.K. Simmons, the whole thing. It's great. Love Emma Stone. Like, I was just so excited to be in in Damien Chazelle's movie. And Emma Stone, we hear, really loved you. Yeah, we had a great time. She's awesome. She's so sweet. We had such a fun time. And R.G., I like to call him RG. Uh, (laughs) Ryan Gosling is such a sweetheart. And um, for the brief moment that we got to work together, even though we never really did any scenes together, all that nightclub stuff, jazz club, Sebs, welcome to Sebs. You know, we had had fun. Are you guys La La Land fans? I'm a fan of that movie. I I do like that movie. I am. Because I I didn't move to Los Angeles with like the hopes of of acting, but I did move here with hopes of like career stuff in this amorphous sense because I do work in entertainment. So as a, a dreamer and a romantic and someone who's like dated my husband, my husband's a musician and, um, oh, okay. yeah. So La La Land taps into my innate romanticism. So it's, yeah. it's hard, even though I'm not like a big musical person, but yeah, I, I liked it. Yeah, I think Whiplash is like uh, undeniably a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And I think La La Land is such a expanded scope and like lives up to the hype for the most mm-hmm. part. And yeah, your appearance in La La Land, I like clutched my pearls because, you know, it was the yeah. Patterson and she found another jazz guy to replace Ryan Gosling's character. It's crazy. I didn't even think about that. And I'm not kidding. I did not think about that at all. I didn't make any connection to that thing you do at all. I got off of the part. I read the script. I was like, oh, cool. You know, like I'll be that solid guy that you, I can see why you, Deb Aquila who cast it, cast me and uh, Dead Man on Campus and uh, Mm -hmm. we've been friends over the years. And so she ran into me at a restaurant and she was like, I have something for you. And I was like, okay. So what had happened was she, she suggested me to Damien. He said, is he available? I'm available guys. I'm totally available. If anybody has that question, is Tom Everett Scott available for a Damien Giselle movie? The answer is yes. So I was like, yeah, uh, amazing. Deb, thank you for putting me forward. And he was like, I'm a huge That Thing You Do fan. So I didn't know that until I get to the read through. And then he's like, yeah, me and my fiance, one of the things that was like the make or break point in our relationship was we were on a long road trip, got the playlist on, driving, talking, having a great time. Everything's going well. But I know that next up is That Thing You Do. And I don't know whether to skip it or let it play and see what she thinks. So he just threw caution to the wind. He let that thing you do play. And she said, oh, my God, this is my favorite song, my favorite movie, whatever. And that's when he knew that he could marry this person. 
So I'm like, okay, cool. That's very sweet. He's like, and so that thing you do is a big part of my life. And he's made it his mission to, I mean, Ethan Embry is in the, the, the Ryan Gosling. Um, oh, first man. Yeah. yeah first yeah. man. Thank you. Oh, Ethan's one of the astronauts in that. You know I mean? I think he wants to like work with Steve. I think he wants to live Charlotte. You uh, know what I mean? He's, he's working his he's, way through the <laughs> through the wonders. <laughs> exactly. Through the Plato and galaxy of stars. It's amazing. And so <laughs> I never put it two and two together until the movie actually came out. And I saw somebody tweet something like, of course, Guy Patterson's in the jazz club at the end of La La Land. And I was like, whoa. Did you like create? I know sometimes actors, even when the audience doesn't get a backstory for a character, like an actor will create a backstory internally. Is that something that you did with your character for La La Land or, or not particularly? We just sat down and talked about it. Like, okay, what do you think he does for a living? Oh, it's probably right. something very stable. Something you want, you know, Emma's character to be moving on to somebody very different than Seb. Safe. Yeah. So we just talked about that. And, you know, what I focus on, and this is just my process, is that in that movie, in the moment of those scenes, I am there for her. Like, it's, we're going to go out on a date. It's going to be a great night. You know, I mean, that's what I want, you know, and that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. I will say before we move on that I did make my husband watch Whiplash because I just wanted to see how he would respond. He went to music school. He went to Berkeley School of Music in Boston and um he didn't make it all the way through because apparently it's like there there's this like strange law of the like music school universe that if you don't graduate then somehow you're like more you become more successful because you had like better things in school going on because he talks sometimes about how like jazz and, and like theory focused and, and ultimately kind of boxy uh, music school can be. And I was like, was, I know I'm not saying that this is anything that whiplash is your experience at Berkeley, but like, what does it mean to you? What does it, what does it make you feel? <laughs> is it making, cause like I'm, I'm definitely sweating the whole time while watching it. And for Very my true. husband, he was just like, no, I would. I would have just left. I would just walked out. Like I, I well, love this. Yeah, <laughs> that is also Taylor, right? Taylor's just like whatever, man. Yeah, no, he's <laughs> he's very he's he is on his own journey, and that that's why, like you know, we <laughs> that's why we love each other. I will say, mm -hmm. as great as Whiplash was when I first saw it, and I did feel that fake drummer competition, and <laughs> uh, you know, definitely, I was watching that him. Like, okay, all right, he's got he's got some chops. No, I'm uh, just kidding. I am though uh, more like La La Land. I'll go back to and watch as an audience member more than any other um, Damien Chazelle movie. I did enjoy First Man. I thought that that was underrated. La La Land is more life affirming than Whiplash or yeah Babylon, which is true bleak. Yeah. Speaking of Damien Chazelle and, and his moment with his eventual wife, I'm not a drummer, but whenever the song comes on the radio or more likely my Spotify, I have to drum along with that intro specifically. Mm -hmm. um, what happens to you when you hear the song? The thing you do? Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, let's just put it this way. I've heard it more times than anyone else. <laughs> other than the people who did post-production on, on that thing you do i love it it's it's there it's a big part of my life so we did a reunion where me and ethan and jonathan steve was unavailable one of these days we'll get all four own eaters together uh for the same thing but but steve couldn't make this one thing we did at the roxy where we actually got up on stage and backed up this uh comedian josh adam myers so we had to go back to the rehearsal studio and ethan turned to me and he's like i hate this song you know, and I was like, <laughs> you know, you don't No, you don't. He goes, well, you know what I mean? And I'm like, I, I, I get exactly what you mean. Like, we don't hate it. We love it. But he meant like having to like play it again. You know, like 
he's got a hard bass part. The drums aren't that hard. hard. You know, I mean, I don't know what to say. I don't know what the answer is other than. Are you for the only people on the planet who have managed to become sick of that song? Because for everyone else, it's still there. And Ethan, if you're listening, I know you don't really hate this song, but you, you did say you were sick of it. So I'm calling you out. I can't say that I'm sick of it. I, I, I still get joy if other people have joy. Like I was in Montreal. We're filming Clouds. The music supervisors and a bunch of us went out to have a night out and we wind up karaokeing. And of course, they're like, come on, we got to sing that thing do <laughs> on stage. And you know what? Because they were so excited and happy, I'm I'm in. I'm in on that. Like I'm that's gonna make me happy. I'm jumping around, I'm singing the harmonies. It's fun. You if you see me, Jonathan and Steve, if you see us singing it at the uh, minor league baseball game in Erie, like we're just full on, fully into it. It's all good memories for us. I love that. As a former so I lived in Harrisburg as a kid and like half of what summer camps would do is just take us to minor league senators games. So if I had been a kid and like seen something like that, or if I've seen something like that as an adult, I would, you know, plot. And if Jonathan or Steve are ever not available, I volunteer as tribute to come fill in for them. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I definitely, I got it up here. What, what instruments do you play? I play guitar and bass. Oh, look at that. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Utility man. Ethan's part is a little difficult for me because it's, it's walks so much. Yes. And he plays it with a pick, which is pretty, it's a lot. He's rad. But uh, yeah, Ethan's a, a really good musician. Ethan's rad. He was like the guy who, out of the group, we were like looking to. Because he was a guitarist, but he picked up the bass pretty easily. Mm. Have you seen him in Cheap Thrills? No. The performance of his like adult career. It is, oh. he's incredible in it. Um, okay, I'm going yeah. to watch it. Him and David Keckner. Very, very, very oh. good. Love Keckner. Okay, yeah. Cheap Thrills. Let's talk about the lasting impression being in the wonders left on you. Is it true that Steve Zahn was the best man at your wedding? He was. He was. Gosh, do I have a photo of that anywhere? Adorable. Oh, and he is. And he is just the best man. He is the best man. So he's so funny. We met. We called each other. He was living in New Jersey. I was living in Tribeca in Manhattan and our drum teacher and guitar teacher knew each other. They were pals. And so our teachers had the idea that we should all get together at the end of the month long of the one-on-ones just to like, okay, you know, let's see what, you know, let's do this together as a group. So that was a great idea. So the night before we met, we had each other's phone numbers. And so it was one of those situations where we started the phone conversation and it just went into the night, like sitting on the floor Two of I think we talked for over two hours on the phone and we just kept going and going and going and going and going because we we're excited. We we're like about to launch into this Tom Hanks movie together. And I remember at the end of the conversation, Steve said something like, I can't believe we've been talking for like two hours. This is either like the greatest friendship or we just hate each other. <laughs> and he just nobody really makes me laugh like Steve. He is the funniest person I actually know yeah. on this planet. Yeah. Even when he's so pissed off and ranting, it's the funniest rant you'll ever hear. So then we went and we played together with our teachers and it was just fun. And then we went and got a beer after that. Yeah. He made me laugh just about how he got a speeding ticket on his way there. You know what I mean? I was just laughing about everything. And we lived at the Oakwoods together. We just became pals. We did everything together. Our wives became best friends, which was huge. And we always say that if they hadn't become friends, that we wouldn't be together still. 
And yeah, I just, he, he was my best man. He gave a, everyone cried when he gave his speech at the wedding. <laughs> oh. He said something like marriage is, you know, just when you think you can't give any more, you give more, you know, and, and then when you think you've done giving more, you, you give a little more and everyone's crying. It was sweet and he was crying. And then later on out by like the hot tub, uh, we got married in the Cayman Islands at this resort and we're out there and we're just having a beer and sitting over there. I said, man, thanks. That best man speech was great. He goes, oh, that wasn't the real best man speech. Here it is. It's not give more. Marriage is you just take more. And when you, <laughs> you just, if you don't know you can take anymore, you just take more. <laughs> this, this is really reminding me of his white lotus part, by the way. Yes. Especially in like the Cayman Islands and the hot uh-huh, tub. In the resort. And just because being like, son, let me, disaffected youth, teenage son who's just on his phone, the whole, let me tell you about life and marriage. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, he was the best man at my wedding and he's still like my best pal. Like when he was doing Treme in New Orleans, I drove down there and we like hung out in New Orleans and he was the mayor of New Orleans because that's who he is. And I was my, my first time being in that city was the best because Steve knew everybody, knew where to go and we had the best time ever. And then this past summer... I was in um, Tennessee doing a Christmas movie with Dolly Parton. It was the best experience of my life. She's amazing. And Steve drove down from Kentucky where he lives. And we hung out in Dollywood. And he crashed our rap party. Places on Earth I Want to Be is Dollywood with Steve Zahn crashing. Oh, it was so fun. I was so beyond happy to see him in White Lotus because I've never stopped believing in the Zahnessance. Yeah, he steals everything he's in. It was Zonasance. Zonasance, no, he is. He's a real actor. I mean, he's he's brilliant. Yeah. He's just a real deal. Well, that's about all the time we have for this very special B-side in sync episode. Thank you so much again to Tom Everett Scott, aka Spartacus, aka Shades, aka a total mensch. Tune in again next week when we'll tackle another great on-screen needle drop. Journalist Stephen Kearse will join us to talk about the 1989 masterpiece, Do the Right Thing, and its opening anthem, Fight the Power. Until then, I'm your host, Eve Rubenstein. And I'm Rachel Brodsky. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Kyle. Can We Geek About is a new podcast from Gotham West. Each week, JJ and I will delve into the geekier side of pop culture, from our favorites in science fiction and fantasy, to new releases and even maybe rag on some absolute flops. We promise that even if you don't like what we have to say, you'll like how we say it. But anyway, can we geek about? Did you really need me here for this? I just needed a ride. (sighs) Can we geek about? So give us a listen, subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts.